You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou Well, I'm going to read to you the question that was sent to me by email, and then we can, then we can launch into that a little bit. Um, he started by saying, I usually hate asking the what-if question when it comes to what we think God would do in certain situations, but this one has given me mental gymnastics. What if, after Peter denied Christ three times, he would have died? Would he have gone to hell because he would have committed the unforgivable sin, denying Christ and blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Needless to say, that didn't happen, and Peter went on to be even greater than what he was up to that point. But it begs the more overarching question of sin and forgiveness. Like you said this morning, committing sin doesn't make you a sinner. Being a sinner makes you commit sin, which we all do. And Mark 3, 28-30 seems to talk of all sins being forgiven except for the big one, of course. So, if we want to look at a narrow situation, someone could jeopardize his self... Could... Sorry, could... Yeah, I, I think he meant to put this in the form of a question. Could someone jeopardize his salvation in a moment of bad timing? I know where to look at Scripture with context and with the mind of God as our motive for everything we read. God is loving and forgiving, but he also requires obedience, repentance, and most importantly, accepting the gift of Christ. So how would God look at something like that if we are brave enough to presume what he thinks? Again, we have enough to worry about when it comes to our own behavior that we probably don't need to go into the weeds with hypotheticals. But I guess this does sort of speak to the nature of God. So I'm interested in your take as an apologist. So, that's the, uh, that's the setup. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the, the first thing to, to say about this is it's answering questions like this um, that I think has uh, led a fair number of people of a, who are influenced by John Calvin and Augustine before him uh, into the weeds of a very hard predestinarianism. Uh, it's called double predestination. So not only does God predestine who will be saved, he's predestining everyone uh, either by a- actively predestining to da- them to damnation or simply not saving them. He's, he's, he's predestining them to damnation. So um, some Calvinists try to get away with God only predestines those to, who are going to salvation saying everyone's born going to hell so God doesn't have to predestine that Um, he does have to predestine who's going to get saved so answering questions like this just lets people go okay well we've answered the logical question now now we have to move on Um, but I think this person asking the question really hits the main thing is that that assassinates in my estimation the character of God Um, the the language that we translate as predestination or, or predestined, the verb we translate as predestined in the New Testament, is a tricky verb to translate. And it's not insignificant to me that the first person who takes a hard predestinarian position that we have their, their material is Augustine. 
and Augustine's writing in Latin, not in Greek. In fact, Augustine hated Greek. <laughs> um, he, for whatever reason, it was a distasteful language to him, and he didn't like to do theology in it. Uh, but it is the language of the New Testament. And so it's interesting to me that as if you read the other church fathers pre-Augustine, they will use the same word as predestination the, that's used there. And I think it's, again, I think it's kaleo. So I'm going to go back into my Bible software here. And I'm trying to think of... Okay, this is where I'm really... See, I'm, I'm a terrible pastor. I, I'm really bad at Bible hockey. Anybody remember where it says those those whom he predestined, he also, or those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and da-da-da-da-da-da. For whatever, I'm having that... My brain is skipping a beat right now. I could Google it. No, get it. I could Google it. Romans eight twenty nine. There you go. <laughs> I got it. Sometimes, sometimes it's faster to Google it. But my, I figured the word foreknew only appears a few places in the New Testament, yeah. so I could keyword search it. Um, so the Romans eight twenty nine for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, or to be conformed to the image of his son. So, no, it's not kaleo. It's um, prusizo. Okay. Um, so, these words are hard to translate. And as I always tell my uh, my kids, when you're dealing with translation, or what we're dealing with any word, right? Especially if you're dealing with, with nuance. Um, you have two, two meanings to a word in every language. There's the denotation, which is what you'll find in the dictionary. And then there's the connotation, which is the street value of the word. Okay, so um, I, I'm I'm forcing our high school students to deal with poetry now in our um, in our Christian worldview class, in large part because the Bible contains so much poetry. So if if they are uncomfortable dealing with poetry, there's parts of the Holy Scripture that are that are going to be absolutely opaque to them. <laughs> the, you have to have some basic skills in reading uh, poetry. Um, and poetry is the foremost institution of the spoken word. So you have to, you have to be competent with language to understand poetry. Now, they, they do this instinctively when they listen to pop music. They don't think of the lyrics to pop music as poetry. <laughs> but they are. Um, they're not exactly exalted poetry. It's not Ovid or Homer, but it's poetry. Um, and so... Uh, Apparently, the connotation of the word tra we translate as predestination, whatever it meant to the later Greek speakers, and that's less clear, what it meant to the early Greek speakers did not mean predestination in the way that Augustine and later Calvin and even Luther probably interpreted it. Um, that can't, or else we would see that in the church fathers, the Greek-speaking church fathers, which is pretty much all of them until the, the 400s. Um, although I, Cyprian of Carthage did do some of his theology in Latin, um, yeah, so he was in the 200s, but, but the primary theological language of the church is Greek. Whatever the nuance is that surrounds that word, it couldn't mean the same thing as it means to us in the wake of 1,500 years of Augustine and 500 years of John Calvin. Um, or else we would have we would see that reflected in what are that what what's called the subapostolic period that period of the church fathers uh, just after the apostles so Clement of Rome and 
well, Polycarp for that matter, although we don't have any of his extant writings, Irenaeus, they're not focused on predestination the way that Augustine and later Calvin would be. And a, a friend of mine was at the C.S. Lewis Institute. Um, this is probably a decade ago now. Every summer, you can uh, the C.S. Lewis Institute, you can actually go uh, over near the kilns where, where Lewis resided uh, a good part of his adult life, and they have a big two-week festival um, with great presenters who are fantastic Lewis scholars um, and people who are picking up themes in Lewis's writing and you know working on them a little more and stuff like this. Well, a couple of years ago, a friend was listening to uh, one of the great, he said it was probably the best lecture he heard that, that year, and he said the main, the, the, the speaker was giving a historical overview of, of where Lewis fell in, in English-speaking theology. And one of the things he said that really stuck with my friend was he said, this man said, you could, you could almost write off the last 500 years of European history as an angry response to Calvin's God. Now that really stuck with me um, because what, what a hard predestination line does to, uh, does to the character of God, it makes the language of predestination um, understandable and makes God's character inscrutable. Why does God save some and not others? And it seems like the entire labor of both testaments of the Bible is to make God's character apparent and, and predestination inscrutable. It seems like it reverses the formula. It's one of those forest for the trees things. You can quote a lot of predestination passages um, especially in Romans and the Gospel of John, where it looks like there's a hard kind of predestination thing going on. Um, and those things focus on God's sovereignty. But what's being, what, what, what all four Gospels work hard to testify to is God's tremendous love for sinners in giving His Son. It's also what the, cor the rest of the corpus of John's liter the Johannine literature points to, John 1, 2, and 3, right? Um, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, I should say. Um, it's, it's what Peter focuses on. It's what James focuses on in their epistles. Um, so, to, to make the character of God inscrutable, and in that way to make him like the God of Islam, whose primary characteristic is that he's sovereign, right? That's the, the word Islam means submission. Um, to be a Muslim means to submit to the sovereign God. Um, so that, you know, I think I've, I know I've told this story before, but when there was a debate going on between Scott Hahn, who's a Roman Catholic apologist, um, at Penn State, my alma mater, there was a debate going on between him and, him, and an imam. And it was kind of, I say debate, it was a night of theological conversation, but there was going to be debate because it was a hardcore Catholic and, and a hardcore Muslim. They were, they were not going to agree on everything. <laughs> well, when they were laying down the rules of the debate, that's how you do these things in a polite society. You know, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to touch these issues. We're going to get too, too much into the weeds if we do that one. Let's keep the main things the main things. These are going to be our topics, right? Well, 
just because it's how he thinks, um, Dr. Han kept calling, referring to God as Father. Our Holy Father, our Father in Heaven, whatever. And the Imam progressively got, kept getting more angry. And he would just, no, stop, don't call God that. And, I, you know, just, again, it wasn't, he was try, wasn't trying to stick his finger in the guy's eye. It's just his habit. It's his way of thinking. And at a certain point, he says it like one too many times. And the Imam stands up and slams his hand down on the table and says, the debate is off. We will not discuss this. God is not a father. God has no sons. God has slaves. <laughs> um, and, and that's that's the key distinction there, right? Well, as as much as and I have this love hate relationship with, with Reformed theology. I love its clarity, but it seems to me that in order to solve certain things that the Bible leaves mysterious. It, 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 it does this trespassing on, on the character of God and inverting the character of God. So, you know, for all of Paul's theological language, um, and that's where you're going to find the most, the most knockdown, drag out arguments for, for a hardcore view of predestination are going to be in Paul, right? Um, and, and to a lesser extent, the Gospel of John. Um, for all of that, Paul will, as we heard in our readings for today, uh, I was in a worship service earlier today with all the pastors of the region in the NALC's theological conference, um, talking about Paul will, will equally jump in and say, you know, with, for instance, with Galatians, and say, you know, if you are son, if, if you can cry, Abba, Father, that's the spirit within you, and if you are sons, then you are, if, you, if he's your father, then you are sons, and if you're sons, then you're heirs. You know, so this language of that we are adopted into the family of God, and that's also in Galatians, that we've received a spirit of adoption, right? Um, that makes God very, very different in character than a God who only has slaves. Um, and if you look at the Westminster Confession, there's lots of different versions of Reformed theology. Don't get me wrong. I know it's a, it's a multifaceted thing. It's, a, it's an octopus with a lot of arms. But, you know, the Westminster Confession is probably the most widely accepted confession of the, of the Calvinists, um, those who have Reformed theology. Well, what's the first article of the Westminster Confession? What is the, what is the chief purpose of man? Question. Just like our catechism, right? This is a question and an answer. Um, so, what is the chief purpose of man? Question mark. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. <laughs> nope. Hello, puppy. Who's that? I'll, I'll mute. That's my dog. I'll just hit mute. Go ahead. Okay. I'll turn off my mic. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> my dog does the same thing when I first get home. Is he? I wonder. Is he reacting to my voice? <laughs> um, He's disagreeing with you. No. There you go. There you go. Well, if if you're. Um, if your chief purpose is to glorify God, um, that means that your first instinct towards God is submission, and that's very much like the Cal like the Islamic God. I, I think I think Calvinism moves our understanding of God's character too close to the Islamic idea to be authentic to the Christian tradition. Um, the deep Christian tradition. I'm going back again into the Church Fathers and everything like this. Um, it seems to me that um, the first characteristic of God is his, in Christian perspective, is his love. So he, again, 
John 3.16, right there in the Gospel of John, it's going to give you the most ammunition for a hardcore predestinarian view. God so loved the world. Well, the word, the word world there, we use translate as world, is cosmos, right? God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son. So, and, and that's, a, that's a correct interpretation, just like I was teaching, uh, gave, them, gave the kids in their homework this week for homeschool, um, some of the opening of the Cosmos series by Carl Sagan. Well, that's, that's what the world it's referring to there is not narrowly the earth, it's everything, right? It's, it's the, the created order. Um, God so loved that. And that's the vision that St. Paul even has in Romans 8. The whole burden of Romans chapter 8 is to talk about that with the adoption of our bodies, when our bodies are resurrected, then the whole creation is being renewed. It's, this is cosmological in scope. Um, so, all of this is a preface to the way I want to answer um, this gentleman's question who emailed this to me. Um, the most helpful approach I've gotten to the question of predestination uh, versus free will, because that's how it's usually put out in Western <laughs> philosophical circles. Bless you. Sorry. Don't be, you're fine. All right, better out than in. Get that stuff out of your lungs. It's nicer than my dog barking, so it's <laughs> I have to meet your dog someday. I love dogs. Oh, bring, no, bring him down for the. We, we always do a do, we always do a pet blessing in October. Do you really? All yeah, right. Yeah, for St. Francis Day. Well, probably He's what we. Oh, that's cool. We'll probably probably do it the night we do the. Um, we're doing a campfire on I think the first Saturday in. Okay. Okay. Uh, in October, so you can bring him down for that. Anyway, <laughs> um, so the 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 way you know. The, the word free will, first of all, of course, is never used in Scripture. So that narrow philosophical concept is never addressed. However, um, God is constantly calling people to make choices, everywhere and constantly. Okay. Now, again, to make the predestination piece work out, because, again, for a Calvinist, the chief thing is God's sovereignty. That's what needs to be protected in their theological system. God's, God is absolutely sovereign. God gets what he wants. So that I heard, a, I think it was James White, a, a, a relatively famous Calvinist, ask the question. He said, he said the, real, the, the question underlies Calvinism, the question that from their perspective every other Christian has to answer, every Christian who's not a Calvinist has to answer is, does God get what he wants? Or can God only try to get what he wants? Can God save or can God try to save? Okay. So that's why they're so hardcore on the predestination piece. Um, and I think, I think the bulk of the Christian tradition answers God can try to save. Um, and I think... And this, there, I, I'd say, I think there's a split in the Lutheran house. There are some Lutherans who are as hardcore predestinarian as any Calvinist are. Um, the the way that Lutherans don't drift into that double predestination thing is that we locate the predestination in the process of the person responding to faith. So rather than thinking of predestination as God was at the beginning of time, He lays out everything. And then we, that we're walking through it. To us, it's a surprise what's happening, but to God, it's not. That God is, because 
we would say that's a wrong view of God because God's not inside of time like we are. God's already at the beginning and already at the end. So, God to God, all moments are now. So God is acting in the process of of this, and so is is he. And that leaves mysterious to us as Lutherans what happens to those who don't have faith in Christ. Especially, you know, the question that, that kids love to ask pastors for years and years is, oh, what about the, what about the people in the bush in, in Australia who never heard of Jesus? Does that mean they're damned? Well, Luther's response would essentially be, eyes on your own paper. You've heard the gospel. It's not a question of those who don't hear the gospel. Um... We don't know what happens to them. We don't need to know what happens to them. You've heard the gospel. So how do you respond to the gospel? Now, um, of course, in a world that's gotten very, very small with the advent of the internet, those questions have become more pressing than ever. Because it's more likely than ever, it's more, very, much more likely for my children that they're going to have people they're going to chat with like this in a college classroom who are from a completely different culture than it was my experience. I knew people from different cultures in Penn State, but far more likely we were going to do that. I'm sorry. Okay, someone was, someone was trying to call me. I haven't heard from him in a long time, but I have to call him back. <laughs> there we go. Um, anyway, the, uh, he doesn't know I'm in, it's another pastor. He doesn't know I'm in the middle of a Bible study. Uh, so... Here, let me do this because he won't know what. Let me text. Let me text him back. Okay, I apologize for doing this, but that way he won't keep trying to call me. <laughs> he's that kind of friend, huh? Well, he's a bit of the pastor, so when I say I'm in a Bible study, he'll know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> Okay, there we go. So, um, where did I leave off? That's the only danger of me doing that. I get lost. Um, you were talking about people in the bush. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, so far more likely that people will... So I, I don't know that the question that satisfied... The answer that Luther came up with that satisfied him in the 16th century when the, you know... And I'm not even sure when he gave that answer. So I'm not sure if he was into his anti-Semitic period already or not. So if it was before that, though, um, it's one thing when you're sitting in the midst of Christendom and the only non-Christian you encounter is a Jew. Um, and you think of them as separated brethren anyway. And the Muslims are down in Vienna trying to, trying to invade Europe. You know, um, and that's as far as they're going to penetrate. So the world is way out there. The non-Christian world's way out there. I don't know that that answer satisfies anymore. Um, right. Existentially, <laughs> at least, right? Um, it probably never satisfied intellectually, but it, it, it satisfies a whole lot less existentially now. Um, but by locating God's predestination in the process of the preaching and hearing of the gospel, and that's it very, very narrowly and specifically. You know, it's not enough to have faith in something. That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is faith in Jesus, and specifically faith in him as Savior, and thereby as Lord, right? The two are intimately connected. 
So um, Luther, I think, correctly identified the fact that you never come to faith in Jesus while walking and considering the mountains. You know, Plato didn't have the chance to come to faith in Jesus. He came to the conclusion there was only one God by examining nature. But he didn't give that God the name Jesus Christ. First of all, of course, he lived before Jesus. And second of all, no one had told him the story. So it's in the preaching of the gospel that the Holy Spirit then utilizes that moment to give you the gift of faith. Now the question is, can you resist that gift or not? Right? So my answer to James White would be, when I say God can try, because I think the way a Calvinist would say it is, if God can't save, then you're saving yourself. Okay? Um, and we know that we can't do that. Yeah. Okay. Does that make, does it make sense? We know we can't save ourselves, yeah. so that if, if God can't save you, if God doesn't get what he wants, then what's happening is you're saving yourself. And I think that makes a category error. Um, and this is the way I've come to understand it, to reconcile what's called, to reconcile free will and uh, predestination. So predestination holds up God's sovereignty in, in even in giving you faith to respond to the gospel. And I agree with that. Um, I think that is biblical. I think you can see clearly that it's the Holy Spirit who gives the gift of faith. Um, that God, And that's that language of God calling. And, and the, the word we translate as predestination is related to the word for call or election. There's different ways of translating it. Um, in fact, one of the issues we have with English Bibles is that they've all been translated by Calvinists, including the King James. So, <laughs> um, so there's no non-Calvinist translating the, the, the Greek into English. And so that's an issue we really have to be serious about, and I think that, that Lutheran theologians have tried to get behind those translations a little bit. So, but with the, the clear piece that... that Again, as I, we see God calling people to choices constantly. So I think the Calvinist system makes the God, God is just playing a game. He's saying make a choice, but no, he doesn't really mean that. Well, that's, what does that do to God's character? Then, it, then that gets even weirder to me. And, you know, makes God like, he's a puppet master. He's working all the puppets. And um, our, we have the illusion that, we, that, that we're actually interacting with God. But in fact, God's God's interacting with God through us. Well, that's that seems to be the exact opposite of the dignity you would think of in God giving His, give, making us sons, making us sharers in Christ's um, in Christ's freedom and glory, right? Um, which, uh, Christ's righteousness, um, which is what we're doing. It's it's not ours to begin with. But it is, it's Christ. So, what I've, come to, what I've come to believe, the way I reconcile these two seemingly irreconcilable pieces in Scripture, and Peter Kraft helped me with this a lot. Uh, you can go and hear his lecture on this at peterkraft.com. Um, his last name is spelled K-R-E-E-F-T. Um, hey. Yeah, K-R-E-E-F-T. So it looks like Kreeft, yeah. but it's Kreeft is how you pronounce it. 
Um, he's a former Calvinist who became a Roman Catholic relatively early in his life. He's in his 80s now. Um, amazing, amazing philosopher. Especially amazing because he has a knack for making the complex simple, which not all philosophers do well. Um, when he approaches this issue of free will and predestination, he comes at it from an angle uh, of a storyteller. And I think that's a good angle because what are the scriptures if not a collection of stories, right? God has mm -hmm. revealed himself to us by interacting with us. And even when God speaks, it's in the context of a story where he's interacting with particular people. Yes, I hear, um, I, I, I look at Abraham as the father of faith, as St. Paul instructs us to, but we get the picture of him as the father of faith through the stories in Genesis, right? So, um, and I'm very influenced by Robert Jensen in this regard. So, so what I see is that God has the power to give us faith, right? Now, as called and redeemed children of God, now we actually do have free will. We didn't have free will before that. We didn't have enough free will to come to God. Our, des our desires are too disordered. I will always, always, and this is, a, I'm going to quote John Calvin here in a, in, a, in a way that's laudatory since I'm being critical of him now. Um, when, he, when he says that the mind of fallen man is an idle factory. I will always remake God into my own image, given my own choice. Right? And here I'll quote, uh, so I'm going to go back and forth between the Calvinists and the Roman Catholics tonight. So, and that's where I love that, uh, oh, what's his name? Wrote the everlasting man. Oh, English apologist before Lewis. He was influential on Lewis. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. Um, G.K. Chesterton said, um, you know, in the he basically was agreeing with John Calvin. He said, you know, in the beginning, God made man in his own image, and man has never ceased trying to return the favor. Okay. <laughs> so, so we're, we like to make idols. We don't have enough free will to, to climb the ladder back to God. Okay? So God has to come down and rescue us. And that is what the gospel is, right? God, God takes on our human form, enters our human condition, comes to us directly, and continues to do that in the person of the Holy Spirit, even now that Christ has ascended. So God, God's always bringing himself down to our level to reach us and lifting us up towards him. Now that, but now that I have faith, I finally have free will. So what can I do with it? I can either hold on to it or I can throw it away. So our free will functions in a purely negative way. I can reject Christ, or I can continue to hold on to him. And that's, the, the Lutheran confessions use that language very, very clearly. They talk about faith holding on to a promise. So imagine you're, you're in a really deep hole and someone throws you a rope. Faith is what you use to hold on to the rope. Now, if that person pulls you out, do you say, whew, I'm glad I climbed out with that rope? No. You're glad they <laughs> saved you. <laughs> right? And that's where the category error comes in that Calvinists make. They think you either you're saving yourself or God's saving you. But if God's throwing you the rope and God's pulling you out, or better yet, maybe even a better analogy would be, a better metaphor would be, God climbs down the rope, throws you over his shoulder, and climbs out using the rope he threw into the hole in the first place. What you don't do is say, oh, I saved myself. 
you, you've got perfect freedom to jump off of, the, of God's back. If Jesus climbs down into the hole, throws you over his shoulder, you say, get away from me, I don't want you. Well, that's, that's on you. It's not on Jesus. <laughs> you, know? um, you used your free will to damn yourself. But God, gave, God did everything to save you. Now, the, and that really comes down to is how much in the image of God are we made? And how much did the fall take away from us? God has, God, there's no compulsion in God. God is never under a compulsion to act. He has complete free will. I suspect Adam and Eve had something like free will because that, that the, and that's what they lost when they disobeyed. They used their free will to damn themselves. And now they've lost the capacity to be completely obedient to God. Um, and, and hence all of us. By, by, uh, and this is where I'm going to quote a guy, Romanides. Um, he really influenced my perspective on, um, uh, on the fall. Um, that, um, that the church, the early, and his case in his doctoral thesis was that the early church fathers had a different view of the fall than we had after Augustine. So Calvinists will talk about total depravity. Okay, that's the T in the TULIP acronym. If you ever see, it's called Five Point Calvinism, uh, which comes out of the Westminster Confession. T is the first one, total depravity. We have no ability to climb back to God. Well, that's true. I think as a Lutheran, at least, I agree with that. But once we have saving faith, we are being restored in, and, and, and inwardly healed into the nature we were made to have from the beginning that was given to our, our, our primordial parents. So now I do have free will as a person of faith. I can use that free will to damn myself, or I can use that free will to continue in the faith that was a gift to me in the first place. Now, to take this back to Peter, since that's where our question started, could there be a matter of bad timing? That during his, his rough patch, uh, he gets killed and, and, and it's all over. This is where the sovereignty of God comes into play. Because, as I said, to God, all minutes are now. All times are now. God, of anyone, knows what's really going on in our heart. Better than we do. God knows what's going on in our heart. Okay? Um, God, God is in a position, knowing both the future and, and the past, as the right, this moment right now. When God looks at us, he's seeing every moment of our lives. We, we experience things one moment after another. That's not how God sees us. God sees us in a totality, right? Uh, and so it's not too much to say that God's sovereign, in God's sovereignty and his omniscience, he ultimately knows the choice we're going to make. And that's that foreknowledge language, right? In 829, those whom he foreknew. God knows what our ultimate choice is going to be to reject or to accept. If we accept, it's because he gave us the power to. If we reject, it's on our own. It's because we chose to reject the gift given to us. So would God have... 
Would God let Peter be killed in that moment, knowing where Peter's heart ultimately is? And I think the answer is no. Well, clearly the answer was no from a historical perspective. Um, and, and this is why I, I think Bonhoeffer was in this place too. I think Bonhoeffer agreed with me as a modern Lutheran theologian. Um, this is why Bonhoeffer could break with the medieval tradition about can you bury a suicide in the church graveyard? And, and Bonhoeffer with the perspective of, of modern psychology tied into his, his theology, good Lutheran theology, but a different perspective on the inner life of the person, right, would say, we don't know whether the person died in faith or not. Just because they died in despair doesn't mean they didn't die with faith. We don't know that. And that was affirmed for me by a... Um, a classmate of mine who'd been suicidal had gone through a really serious suicidal period and we, we got talking about this because our, our system we had a wonderful systematic theology professor um, because she the, the final exam for our systematic theology class was 13 pastoral situations we had to respond to mm. so instead of instead of writing a you know a, a, a piece of theological philosophy she put a this happens how do you respond she wanted to see how our systematic theology was informing our pastoral response in the situation, which was a brilliant, brilliant thing to do. Well, one of them was a suicide thing. In fact, we had, a, we had three classes on suicide. We dedicated a whole week uh, to suicide <laughs> because it's one of the hardest things you're ever going to deal with as a pastor from a pastoral standpoint, and you will deal with it. She was very clear with that. She said, you will deal with it. One of my classmates dealt with it literally six, week, six months into his first call, and it was an 83-year-old man who didn't want to be a burden to his kids. You know, not, not what you expect to deal with as a suicide. I dealt with it a couple of years ago with a, a young man uh, from our Abundant Life congregation. Um, what my friend who was in pastoral formation with me said was, he said, when I was suicidal, I didn't doubt the existence of God. I didn't doubt God's love. I just wanted the pain to stop. So he was, he was affirming Bonhoeffer's insight that to die in despair does not mean to die without faith. Okay? Um, and the despair he was feeling was a, was a despair over the, mo the pain, the physical pain engaged, that he was engaged in, or the emotional pain, I guess, in his case, he was engaged in. Um, so all that is to say, we don't, God is in a position to know what our ultimate choice will be, to accept or reject what he's given to us. Um, and, and Lewis, again, I'm going to go back to Lewis because I think he dealt with this, because he dealt with it not as a systematic theologian, but instead uh, as an, a writer, an imaginative writer, an artist, who I think had a profound pastoral sensibility. You can't write, you can't write vivid characters that come to life on the page without a profound empathy for human beings and a, a sense of pastoral um, connection with them. Um, at the end of the great, or in one, at the end of the great divorce, you see him very, very briefly in a very elusive a a l l u s i v e passage deal with the predestination question, where he, he essentially sees himself as a, a character on a chessboard, um, and he 
as he's struggling with, does he have enough, does he have faith? Is he rejecting what he's been given? And that's the way the book ends, brilliantly so. Since it's the only book he actually, he actually appears in as a character um, that he ever wrote. Um, you see him dealing with this question, and, you, and it looks like God's playing a chess game, and he's a character on the board. But God is saying to him, or the angel is his, his mentor, this, 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 uh, this character of his, uh, who's, who's mentoring him or being the voice of God to him at that moment says, you know, but can you grasp the choice, which is the more profound reality behind what looks like predestination? And again, I'll, I'll go to quote Klaus Westermann in his brilliant commentary on Genesis where he said, you know, God writes straight with crooked lines. The, the characters, the characters in Genesis are, are absolutely crooked, every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, this becomes the first book in our book of faith, and God lays out the entire, be- between Abraham and Joseph, God lays out the entire gospel story that will be enacted for us in Jesus Christ. Um, and th- and I think that's where, to, to answer this person's question who sent me this email question, God, God knows where God knows the choices we will make as and, and the choices we won't make the choice to ignore the gospel which is a way of unfaithing yourself right the holy spirit's touching you through the gospel nope i don't want anything to do with that uh, i heard raymond burr i heard raymond burr talk about that do you remember the old perry masons yeah the famous mm-hmm. actor um, he was interviewed quite late in his life and i mean he was a a, a very um, he was like his 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 private life was a bit like um, who wrote uh, an ideal husband and uh, the ports of being earnest. Well, why am I drawing blank on his name? Uh, Oscar Wilde. Thank you, Oscar Wilde. Yeah, Raymond Raymond Burr's private life was like Oscar Wilde's private life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but quite late in his life, he was doing an interview and someone and and he, I don't know why he volunteered this information. He said he said um, you know. I felt God calling me early in my life, and I decided not to follow. Hmm. He didn't go into any more, I don't know whether it was that like a camp revival or something he's felt as a kid or whatever, but he, he made the choice to go for worldly pleasure rather than follow where God was leading. You know, hmm. and, and that's profoundly different than a man I know who... Uh, I frankly looked up to uh, as a pastor um, who was dealing with same-sex desire and had not um, acted on it. I mean, he went to Pacific Lutheran Seminary, which was a very, very out gay-friendly seminary in the 70s, um, and he didn't engage in what most of his classmates were engaged in. He was following after Christ. Now, that's not to say he didn't fall into temptation or something like that, and I know he did because he's in prison right now for traffic in pornography, um, which was really sad for me to hear after you know thirty years of ordained ministry or whatever. But but he didn't fall into unfaith. He wrote a really profound letter to those of us who knew him in the Society of the Holy Trinity, talking about how he could listen to the wit, you know that that. He was ashamed, of course, of having engaged in this, even though he wasn't engaged in behaviors, he was engaged in this other side of things. Um, he, was, he was profoundly ashamed of it, he said, but I, 
but he said, I am not going to listen to the whispers of Satan that my temptation is all I am. I know the promises of God. And I will know the promises of God while I'm in prison. <laughs> um, you know, he accepted full responsibility for what he had done. Um, but he, uh, he was... He knew... He, he wasn't going to let it lead him into unfaith. And again, that's a word we don't even have in English, but it's, but it's there in Greek. If you, if you append the, the letter A before any word in Greek, it means the opposite of. Right? You know, so apistuos is the Greek word for faith. Apistuos is the word for unfaith. And that doesn't mean doubt. It means rejecting faith. It means rejecting trust in God. And so, um, you know... Could Peter have died in the interim? Well, I suppose the question is, as as the light went out in his brain, would his last thought have been, you know, Jesus save me? Or would his last thought have been, screw you, God? <laughs> um, we might never know the answer to that story, but that's why we don't judge, right? That's why we're waiting for that final judgment um, at the glorious appearing of Christ um, or what we call the second coming of the parousia or whatever. Um, that's when we'll find out who's written the book of life. Um, you know, the, the older tradition of, that, that makes more logic out of evangelism to me than the Calvinist position. The Calvinist position essentially amounts to our job is to preach and then God, whoever God's predestined will hear our preaching and respond. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting, strange reality uh, that, that my Calvinist friends, especially my Baptist Calvinist friends, have to deal with. They're busy doing altar calls that, don't, that, that do no good. <laughs> you know? um, That's the kind of church we went to. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 I mean, it didn't necessarily do altar calls, but almost at the end of every single sermon. And if you don't know Jesus, you can speak to me right. or one of the other elders which right. killed me because I was like these are the same people like Every there's week, no yeah. new people yeah. here exactly <laughs> if you haven't saved them yet you've yes. got to take another approach there's there's actually a friend in the no so I have a friend in the Society of the Holy Trinity who used to be a Southern Baptist pastor, and that's what he said. He, there was a retired pastor in his first congregation, and he kept he finally came to him after like three years, and again, same people every week, and he said, "Why do I keep doing this? The same people come forward all the time. They clearly have other issues going on in their life. This is they're, they're either trying to get attention or they can't be sure of their salvation and all this kind of stuff. And this is one of the reasons why Lutherans put such great emphasis on baptism. Because um, if you if your focus if your if your assurance of your salvation is, or God's election let's say it that way if your assurance of God's election is your moment that you had faith what happens in those moments when you doubt whether you had real faith you can't point at anything. Our, our, I know in our other church they said you like once you accepted Jesus Christ that was it like it didn't matter what you did right in your life. Right. Like you could shoot up a McDonald's and die like directly after without confessing or saying you're sorry, right? And like you're good to go because right. you've got your ticket, right? And that's 
that that Weird. that's that's the way you're going to do a heavy predestination piece, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Most Calvinists will be a little more consistent than that, and they'll say, once you've had that moment, you, you will continue in faith if you're really saved. If not, if not, that moment was an illusion to you right. as well as to everyone else, right? Well, <laughs> and so Lutherans look at that and go, that's garbage. Yeah. Because, <laughs> well, I know myself well enough to know I've changed my mind on a thousand things, right? How sincere do I have to be to be sincere? And if it's relying on my faith, isn't that is me saving myself, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, well, so is baptism in that church too. That was all on you, right? Exactly. Like you had but, to get saved, and then you had to stand up in front of everybody, and right? Right. Tell them your testimony, and yes. then you got to be baptized. Right. Yeah. Baptism is the first act of obedience. Apparently, after giving your witness, um, yeah, in that church, yeah. right? So, so Lutherans look at baptism with as as the, the the thing we anchor in on because it's an objective moment in history. So, as our teaching theologian said today, he said, "I don't remember my baptism, but there were plenty of people there who assure me that it happened." <laughs> <You know? laughs> And if I believe what the scriptures say in Romans chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 3, then I know what happened to me in that baptism. And so I can trust that that, that objective moment in time meant something to me. You know, um, my faith is in Christ, not in my baptism. The baptism is the objective evidence that Christ has elected me. <laughs> you know, so, um, so I think that that, you know, what it comes down to in the end, that, that predestination versus free will piece, and this is what Kraft gets to in that lecture, and I, it's, it's titled something like Predestination and Free Will. He gets, actually gets at it by looking at the Lord of the Rings stories, which he's a profound Tolkien fan as well as a profound um, Lewis fan. He's a scholar of both. Um, and he, he, he uses some examples from the story. And he says, essentially, predestination is the story from God's perspective as the author. Free will is, is the story from our perspective as the actors. And he's not just talking about it because God can see every page of the book and flip back and forth, although that's part of it, right? As the author, you can always go to the last page of the book. But... But my experience as an author, when, I'm write, when I've written stories with good characters in them, is that the characters kind of have a life of their own. Okay? Um, I can manipulate the story to make it turn out the way I want, but then the story rings hollow. Okay? The, stories I, the books I hate are, are the ones where you can tell that the author did something with a character for fan service, for lack of a right. better word, you know? <laughs> Um, or for an agenda. Or for an agenda. Yeah, agenda. Right, exactly. In a good story, the characters take on a life of their own. And when they make a choice, it's almost like they, they couldn't have made another choice. Right. You know what I mean? And what that is is that they really have, in my, even in my fallen, silly brain, they have a life of their own. And I'd love to have them make another choice, but they can't and be the same person, you know? And so mm -hmm. that's, that's the predestination piece in a sense. Like I can watch them and almost in horror making a choice I didn't want them to make when I started writing the story, but the way their character developed, they couldn't make another choice besides that. 
You know, I remember uh, J.K. Rowling talking about this in relationship to the Harry Potter books. She was getting a lot of grief as characters started to die off. But she's like, it's almost like the story was writing itself, and it couldn't, it couldn't end up any other way, you know. Um, and that's that. There's a mystery involved here, certainly between free will and pre, and God's election. I prefer that language to predestination. Um, there's a mystery involved, certainly, but that's the nature of dealing with God, and we should know that from the Book of Job. God never answers Job's questions. He's like. <laughs> I can't answer you because you don't have the capacity, basically, is what he says, you know? <laughs> um, and, and I'll buy that. I can't even do really advanced calculus, so I, I accept that I don't have the capacity on these things. Um, but but the, the thing I can't do is assassinate the character of God, and this is to, to, end, to wrap this up. When I read the early church fathers, they essentially... I. I uh, it's not uniform. I don't want to put them all in the same thing. But, but the consensus that seems to emerge is that God elects everyone to salvation. That's why the gospel is to be preached to every nation. God wants everyone to be saved. And we see that language again and again and again, especially in the Old Testament prophets. Especially the, especially the really apocalyptic prophets like Ezekiel. I desire not the death of a sinner, but that they should turn and be saved. You know, that's the character of God. That's the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son and was even willing to die on the cross for our sake. I'm not willing to assassinate the character of God to make my systematic theology work out with nice, tidy hospital corners. And I don't think we need to. So God elects everyone through the gospel. That's why it's our responsible to share the gospel as, as broadly as possible. It's not our responsibility to get people to believe. And I've heard some pastors to talk about that, you know, someone's eternity is hanging in the balance. You've got to close the deal. No, 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 no. That's the Holy, that. Yeah, that's the Holy Spirit's job, right? That's why you have to keep your testimony clean. Right. Good, don't tarnish it. Yeah, you don't want anyone to go to hell because you were a bad Christian. Because I messed, I was like, "Man, that's harsh." Yeah, it it, it is harsh. <laughs> My testimony was tarnished right from the start. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus talked about the Pharisees burdening people with stuff they yeah. couldn't carry. What about that? Yeah, yeah. That was that, that was just like, whether they were clean know, or unclean, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> the Pharisees were just whether they're clean. You're dealing with someone's someone's in hell because of what you did. Get your hand yeah. out of the cookie jar. Jeez, Even talk if about you a burden. Know that person when you did it, you messed up your testimony. Yeah. I was like, how can you mess it up? I don't. Yeah, I, and Lutherans take the opposite approach. Yeah. We'll, you know, Luther's famous quote: "I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread." Look at my life. I guarantee you will you will find more than enough reasons to not be a Christian if what you think being a Christian is is being a good person. I can give you ample evidence that that is not what Christianity is. <laughs> but you know what I can tell you do? I can tell you about a guy who lived much better than me. In fact, lived perfectly and died on a cross. Yeah. <laughs> He's the one you need to look at, not me. <laughs> no, so. And that's probably a good place to end tonight. <laughs> we've, we've run over a good 20 minutes. I apologize. <laughs> that's okay. I, got, I have a little girl sleeping on a couch next to me who snuck down. So. 
I'll give her a snuggle for uh, me. <laughs> I'm just glad my 15 year old will still snuggle with me, and my 17 year old yeah. for that matter. That's so. <laughs> that's <laughs> Sometimes Elias will. Yeah, I understand. 17 gets yeah. a little harder. The boys are like, eh, I'm not sure if this is manly. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Orban's still well. There you go. <laughs> Elias will pat me on the back. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> well, you all have a great <laughs> night. Be blessed. Yeah. And, you too. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. And we'll, uh, we'll catch up soon. Candy, I'll probably give you a call. Are you in dialysis tomorrow? Are you home? I'm dialysis same time till about noon. Okay. Probably sometime in, in the afternoon or early, early evening, I'll give you a call just about who's responded so I know who's coming to which services on Sunday for the right of enrollment. I responded. Great. Yes, you did. <laughs> you did. Awesome. Okay. Um, I was going through them tonight. Yeah, we'll just go. Th- if you want to send me an email about that, then we can just, I'll call you and we'll go over it, okay? Okay, all right. Um, the ice cream. Can't think of my mind is blank. Mm. Emily, Emily. Oh yeah. They're gonna get something to you. Okay. But they have like with COVID, they don't go to facilities anymore. That's fine. You know what? If it, honestly, if we can pick it up, as long as I've got someone to make the run, it's closer to us than the other one. So. Okay. All, all right. right. You should have something in the morning. We're definite on the cost. Sounds great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. God bless everyone. Good night. Bless. Bye. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye bye. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best heart in the day and the night. Sleeping, my presence, my life.